Welcome to episode 9 of Massage Matters with us, the Massage Collective. Myself, Anna Maria Mazzieri, Matt Skarsbrook, and Becky Demo Horton. This week we wanted to unravel our thoughts around the issue of face-to-face treatment, or indeed not, following the lockdown mandate. As it has been a very emotive issue for the industry, we thought we mirror that by asking Becky to read something that she has written herself, where she evaluates and reflects on her role as a soft tissue therapist at this time. So, put your headphones in nice and tight and enjoy the episode. Thank you, Anna. So, yeah, this is a real personal reflection on on my experience. Um, And very kindly, Matt and Anna both suggested that perhaps some other therapists might find something in this. And it's also hopefully going to trigger a bit of conversation between us today. So it's hard to be told you're non-essential. Of all the emotions and challenges that COVID has thrown up, one of the strangest situations we've found ourselves in is having our jobs classified by the government, no less, as being either essential to the basic functioning of our society or not. And surely it's only natural to feel affronted if you fall into the category of non-essential, to feel that your very purpose and value is being questioned. That is especially the case if you happen to find yourself, as we do, outside mainstream healthcare, yet providing a service and treatments which undoubtedly enhance the health and quality of life of our clients. Personally, this hit me particularly hard during the initial stages of the first lockdown. I found myself deeply questioning my choice of career change, having gone from being a control officer in the ambulance service to a soft tissue therapist. For me, there was no doubt in my previous career came with an intrinsic sense of value. Even before COVID, there was a certain reassurance that came from driving to work on Christmas morning, knowing that while the majority of the rest of the country could rest up and enjoy their turkey, your your job was far too vital to do the same. So as March 2020 unfolded, I was left not only with an awful feeling of guilt for not being there to fight this with my old colleagues and friends, but also a new and really quite dreadful experience of being told that it's okay, you can stay at home. The world will carry on just fine. You are not essential. My admittedly not always completely rational brain took that to mean I don't matter. I have no value to society and the work I do with my clients, which I see on a daily basis, help them to live an active and fulfilling life was completely diminished. I was angry that a clear distinction was drawn between what I do and what an allied healthcare professional does when I know that I have a skill set which allows me to effectively help my clients in pain. I felt my training and all the hard work that had gone into achieving a qualification that was respected within the profession was being insulted and undermined. This ran far deeper than a concern that I could no longer financially earn a living. This rocked my very being. I spent a good number of weeks soul searching and wonder if what I'd chosen to commit my professional life to was really of any importance whatsoever. In the end, and bear with me on this, it's a tenuous leap at best, it was the slow return of professional sport that made me see things in a different light. Trivial to some, sport truly is the most important of the unimportant things in my life. As I settled down, excited to watch the England Test team open the batting at an otherwise abandoned Aegeus Bowl, I realised that being non-essential does not equal being of no value. Watching sport is far from essential to survival, hard as it may be for me to admit that. But it's something that makes me thrive as a person. It brings me joy. It's something I share with my friends and my family, which brings us closer together. It's It's given me experiences that I'll never forget. And it's an inherent part of making me who I am. We've all lost things in the last 12 months that, whilst not vital to our existence, gives our lives meaning. Whether it's theatre, art galleries, live music, the pub, your weekly gym class or rugby on a Saturday afternoon. These are all the things that make life meaningful to us. And this brings me to my point. Honestly, there is one. Whilst I'm not comparing what we do to me watching a game of cricket, This realisation helped me make sense of the situation I was in with being able to practice or not as a soft tissue therapist. In these times of severe public health crisis, 
we can do only the things which allow us to survive. And those things which make us thrive must wait for now. Of course, what we do is different to someone going to the pub or watching football. We are an important component of musculoskeletal care. It's been heartening during COVID that all the physiotherapists, osteopaths and chiropractors I have had contact with have reinforced my views on this. I've heard overwhelming support from our allied healthcare professional colleagues for the value of what we do. And to borrow a phrase from Diane Jacobs, what we offer our clients may not be essential, but it can be optimal for them. And unfortunately, right now, no one is able to provide what they consider to be optimal care, including those who have been deemed essential. Our scope of practice means that we are not dealing with emergency or critical situations. The nature of our hands-on work with our clients is currently too much for risk. And the immensely helpful things we can do without being hands-on, screening for red flags, pain education, rehab advice, etc., can all be done through online or telephone consultations. As such, we cannot see our clients face-to-face -face at the moment. However, and crucially, none of this means our treatments are not effective or that we are not respected by the medical profession. It does not undermine our education and our training. It in no way diminishes what we do in helping our clients manage their pain, recover from injury, perform in sport, and live active, fulfilling lives. In short, our value is not being questioned. It's just that right now, we all just have to survive and not necessarily, not necessarily th thrive. So on reflection, do I wish I was still in an essential job where I was certain of how vital what I was doing was? Absolutely not. This has made me see that in the ambulance service, I was preserving life. As a soft tissue therapist, I'm enhancing it. I have the utmost respect and admiration for my friends doing the former, but it just so happens that for me, I find the latter far more fulfilling. Well, yeah, I think that was well worth letting her have a go, wasn't? Don't you? <laughs> there was so honest. That's it. They won't let me speak for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> you had your five minutes of fame. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, there's so much in there that that hopefully will just ring true to to so many therapists who, regardless of what your scope of practice is, what level you work at, what qualifications you've got. I think, heck, even if you are an allied health professional listening to this and, and you're having to make choices about whether you remain open or stay closed and move entirely online or not, I think there's so much in there that just, I mean, I mean to, to, to pick out bits that stand out for me, the, the idea that at the moment, actually, yes, we are just surviving and, and that what we provide is there to help people thrive. And right now, thriving is not an option available to anyone. And I really, really like the fact that you point out that, again, related to the fact that what we do is help people thrive and therefore what we provide may be optimal. No one can provide optimal care right now yeah. in any circumstance. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's none clearer than when you see the the images and the videos coming out from the hospitals. You know, that that is the very antithesis of optimal healthcare uh, because of the situation we find ourselves in. And and if we want to get anywhere close to optimal again, then actually right now is definitely about helping the service, the health service survive. Absolutely. And chatting to my friends that do still work in the health service, that's that's what I'm hearing over and over again, is that they're not providing the care they want to provide. They're not providing the care that they pride themselves on. They're doing what they can um, just to to get by, really. And and so that that kind of brought that home for me. And I hope, you know, everybody's experience of this has been different. That was um cathartic for me in a way I think I needed to um have an emotional vomit as I put it to you guys um but I, I think that for me it was it was a case of saying to people it's all right to feel all those emotions and to to question yourself and it is really hard for not just people in our profession but across all industries to suddenly say do you know what we're going to pay you to stay at home because we don't need you to do your job right now that I think that's really hard and something that it brought home to me was how much of my own personal value I attach to what I do as a career. And to have that taken away from you, 
of course you're going to feel angry and upset and doubtful you know all those emotions are okay and 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 we've all had them i think at various stages uh, however i would say that uh, in the moment in which we are professionals who work uh, we we say we work in healthcare although we're not healthcare professional work in healthcare well working in healthcare and being professionals also means being be able to take uh, some really tough decisions, decisions that they have, they have to, they must be beyond our financial gain. I know that some people are in a real desperate time, times, and they, you know, they're falling through the cracks of the financial helps. But ultimately, if we work in healthcare, we must put public health first. And that's where, if we want to be considered professionals, being a professional comes with greatest, great responsibility. And this is, for me, it's one of those responsibilities we need to take seriously. And we're, we're going to touch on what it means to be uh, a professional soft tissue therapist um, later, I think, in, in this episode. Um, I suppose just to, to add maybe a little bit of balance to to some of the the the, the views that, that Becky expressed, I would sort of say, I've I've I felt all of them as as well. You know, this idea that you're being told you're not essential. But when I was reflecting on this, for me, we have to be quite careful as to whether we have been told we're not essential or not, or actually whether it's a little bit more uh, finessed than that. Um, it's it's really easy to fall into the trap of well, hang on a second, I actually help people you know in their journey of recovering from injury and in their in their performance and yet i've been told to close but the coffee shop down the road still open for takeaways like how how is it that that's more essential than i am and and for me i think it's important to to consider that it's not that we're not essential relative to those other types of service it's that within our specific industry which has been regarded as close contact then the risk, as you say, Becky, is too high for us to be working relative to the perceived benefit. And it is a risk versus a, a perceived risk versus perceived benefit. And and then, you know, uh, an, an obvious retort to that, which uh, I'll, I'll try and head off is, well, hang on then. So why are physios and chiros and osteos all still in um, when to to a greater or lesser extent when it comes to the close contact components of our treatments the, pretty much we're all doing similar things in similar close contact proximity and and i think this also speaks to the the insult that has been taken over the reference to massage parlors, the, the, the frankly clumsy language that has been used by the government. Um, and I'd, I'd address that in, in, in two parts. I'd say, first of all, yes, the language has been clumsy by the government, but they don't know every single industry that exists within our country, and yet they are having to decide on the current behaviors of every single industry within our country. Um, and so whilst uh, I wouldn't necessarily come out and overtly defend all of their decisions, I would say that um, a little bit of, of consideration needs to be made for the, the, the gigantic task in front of them. In terms of, well, how come our allied health professional colleagues uh, are still working in private practice? I would say that that largely that probably comes back to a, a contextual decision where a judgment call was made for private practice health, private practice healthcare to remain open where the practitioners by acquisition of a degree based qualification have demonstrated an ability to apply critical thinking in their clinical reasoning. Now that's not to say that those aren't skills possessed by soft tissue therapists, but it is not specifically trained for or examined in soft tissue therapy qualifications, even at level five. And so when needing to make decisions about who is in, who in private practice healthcare is in the best position to make 
the best of a really bad deal right now where infection control practices are of utmost importance, it makes sense on a national scale to say, well, let's let the people who have, as part of their training, demonstrated this skill set. Evidence of, yes. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, Matt, and it's um... – it is difficult to accept and the language has been clumsy and it's uh, it's just added to all those feelings you know on top of everything else now you've been told you're a massage parlor it, it didn't help anybody's mindset oh, no. at all um i i think I, I i'm the last person to defend the government trust me but they've had to draw a distinction somewhere haven't they and there was going to be a line and there was going to be people that fell either side of it you know there could be arguments for a degree sports therapists to still be working you know there's arguments for lots of people to still be working and that they have certain skills and abilities but as a government like you say who's having to look at the society as a whole where do you draw the line who your allied healthcare professionals are is the obvious and probably safest place to draw that line because of how nuanced our our profession is and and that's not a criticism of our profession. I enjoy how nuanced our profession is. But right now, in this really bizarre, unique, hopefully, situation, it, it's been difficult for us. And, and I'm sure for those people that are making policy decisions to figure out where the line is drawn. I'd like to come back to the question of why our colleagues in physiotherapy, osteopathy and chiropractic professions were able to practice and we were not, and shift that discussion towards the actual activity that happens inside the room. So if we, if we look at massage therapy and soft tissue therapy approaches, they vary tremendously, not only in the level of uh, the qualifications, but also on the interventions that they we use. So some more are hands-on than others, for sure, but we can comfortably say that sustained touch is a big part of our intervention. When I say sustained touch, I mean touching somebody for at least 50 minutes. Certainly it's not what defines us as therapists, and this is an argument or a discussion for a, a podcast in itself, but we wouldn't be true to our approach if we were denying that we were not touching people for... A sustained amount of time. So if we think of that and now we look at the intervention that our physio, chiros and osteopaths colleagues uh, provides, then we can see that the range of hands-off is greater than ours. And therefore, the times that they are in the room with the clients is much, short, much shorter than ours. So what we know in terms of COVID infection, that being in the room with somebody for a sustained amount of time and touching them for more than 50 minutes dramatically increases the, the risk of infection. And let's be honest, no PPE can mitigate such a higher risk when out there the, the, the infection risk is dramatically increased. So in my opinion, we need to start thinking and shifting that uh, argument, not only on uh, professional register, register, but also on the activity that is provided in the room. So shall we actually say that in the room, if somebody is in the room for, four, for, for more than 50 minutes contacting in contact with somebody for more than 15 minutes in a close room, that it's actually an activity that should not be provided. And for that reason, I think that I would have liked or maybe there is need to make uh, uh, some uh, messages from all registered profession, professional councils to, to strengthen the message about minimizing the face-to-face -face contact and ensuring that if face-to-face -face contact is necessary, it should be less uh, or kept within 15 minutes with the right 
level of PPE, like very much what the CSP issued on the first lockdown. They had a very, very strong uh, um, protocol that they had to follow. Also, let's start looking and feeling comfortable with the fact that, like Becky started the conversation, well, we do not provide essential care, especially when essential care in this particular time of COVID includes being able to screen effectively for red flags. And not all of courses in massage therapy and soft tissue therapy, and not at all level, red flags are covered and actually the screening of certain red flags are not within our scope of practice. While they are for a physiotherapist, they are for a chiropractor, they are for an osteopath. In addition to that, the fact that they can, as a, prof- as pro- as a registered profession, they can open a direct referral pathway if they find those red flags. So that then the person does not need to go sh- to the GP and start uh, the process again. So their scope of practice, it's different than ours. And you know what? And it's okay. I've I've found it um, really, really weird at times, actually. And, and, and in fact, just again, recently with the, uh, the launch of all the... Um, uh, push for volunteers for, or not even volunteers, for paid roles for vaccinators. So um, my my personal situation is that I have uh, children who, although nurseries are open now, obviously there's a there's sort of a, a pressure to not use nurseries or schools as much as possible. Um, I know that the schools at the moment are recording higher attendances than they did during the first lockdown, and that's of concern, et cetera, et cetera. So we have children, but my wife is an NHS physio as it turns out now she's got damn near nothing to do with msk that that's not her role uh she works in in a and e and so in a in a strange way she's 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 more frontline than say uh, an nhs uh, msk physio may be unless they they've uh, they've they've changed roles um to to help out with the pandemic but then when it comes to sitting here thinking well i can't i can't open my business. I can't work as a soft tissue therapist, but I really want to feel I'm contributing. I really want to feel I'm helping. What can I do? Actually, on reflection, the thing I can do is be a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. Because actually, if I was to try and go for this, you say the the, the vaccinator uh, type thing, or uh, if I was to uh, go and become a volunteer at the COVID testing station or whatever else it is where I could feel I was contributing to the, to the, to the effort, by definition, that actually puts more pressure on uh, home life. Uh, and the last thing my wife needs right now is a member of the health, you know, the, the national healthcare service is, is home life pressure. <laughs> on top of work-life pressure and it's been a I'll be honest it's been really difficult to uh, what's the word reconcile those feelings with actually the thing I can do to help the most is stay at home yeah yeah despite that being advice (laughs) (laughs) and I touched on that a little bit in that in that blog is you know my overriding feeling at the at the beginning of this back in March because I have that background was oh right I, I need to go back into the NHS I need to go and do something useful and then I was like I, I, I can't it's ridiculous for a start I live like 300 miles away from my nearest control center now but um I understand that Matt and and to take that step back and actually say do you know what actually the the most useful thing I can do right now and what does make me valuable is is to stay at home I think that's a a really big thing to admit but also I want to come back to one of Anna's points there about the difference coming back to the whole allied healthcare professional subject um the difference between the nature of our treatments um and again that doesn't I'm not a attributing a value to either of these types of treatments but interestingly I heard a physio speaking um, the other day and she's obviously still doing face-to-face treatments she's in private practice Um, 
And she said, God, I had to spend half an hour with a client the other day and I felt really uncomfortable that I'd spent that long with them. Now, because of the nature of this um, client's complaint, I don't know what the complaint was, but she ended up spending this whole half an hour with them and they were in quite close contact for that half an hour. But that kind of really drove it home to me that that's unusual for her to be to even be with a client for half an hour, to have a half an hour appointment. Um and to spend that whole half an hour in relatively close contact is is unusual for her. For me, that wouldn't be unusual at all in clinic. And, and that would be, um, yes, it varies from client to client on what they're coming in for. Certainly, I have those clients that come in and we just do some, some rehab or some exercise-based work. But I'd say a fair few of my clients would be fairly perturbed if I wasn't spending half an hour in close contact with them. So there is that that real distinction between we're not saying they're more or less essential than us. It's just there's that difference in the type of appointment treatment that we provide. And rejoicing in the difference and understanding the difference, I think that's giving us our strength. And those therapists who understood that, that the one that reconciled themselves really, really well, once those guidelines were really old, you know, the statement was released from some of our associations say, you know, we advise not to work. Somebody said, oh, my God, thank you very much. Because, you know, the, I was feeling very uncomfortable being out there. And that, that I thought for so many therapists as well, that was a, a great oh, breath of relief to say, actually, you are really aligning with what we feel and, and that was great I thought that, that that was great obviously not everybody was pleased was happy and but what 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 I what just again a little bit concerns me is that this this wanting to the, the absolute want to be the same than a healthcare professional or comparing you know, one profession like massage therapy, soft tissue therapy, or any other uh, uh, private, non-registered healthcare to a healthcare professional. And without actually thinking about the, the, the difference is not only on uh, a name, there is some, the difference, it's in the training, in the history, in the evidence-based approaches. It, it, the difference is massive, but they just been looking only at what hits them, why they're working and why we're not. That's but, very... Sorry, Matt, go. No, no, I interrupted. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I, I think that speaks so well to what I sort of perceive as almost a a spreading <laughs> of the perceived scope of practice of practitioners within our industry. And that doesn't matter whether you're a level three massage therapist or a level five soft tissue therapist. There uh, appears to be a <laughs> what do they what do you call it when you put on weight in middle age sort of like middle age spread <laughs> that kind of slow uh middle age spread that's occurring that you know the seemingly the longer that you are a a, a soft tissue therapist or a massage therapist you're particularly if you focus on your cpd being hands-on and skill-based there seems to be a generic spread in your interpretation of what your scope of practice is. And so rather than, you know, if I'm using this sort of spread analogy, rather than building up within the confines of your scope of practice and becoming rock solid in your scope of practice, you start spreading. And then, and what that, that spread does is, well, first of all, you're working outside your scope of practice, but then you actually start to perceive that your scope of practice overlaps so significantly with the scope of practice of an allied healthcare professional that you then start saying, well, hang on, if then, why not me? Completely. I was going to use the term mission creep, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> That's something slightly different. Um, but and what you're also saying, I think, is that your scope of practice 
actually you're devaluing what your scope of practice is. If you think that you only have value and you only have a relevance within MSK care with this scope creep, if you like, um, you're saying that your scope of practice in the first place didn't have a value. It absolutely does. My, As my qualification states, my scope of practice is minor and chronic musculoskeletal injuries and pain. Now, I'm really proud of that because I can do that really well. Um, I can do CPD courses that, yes, some of the CPD that I do might sit outside of my scope of practice because or I might go and do some physio-based CPD because it informs what I do within that scope of practice. But what I'm always aiming to do is work as well as I can within that scope of practice. Now, if you asked one of my chronic back pain clients, whether I'm of less value because I'm not a physiotherapist and I can't work with neurological conditions, of course they're going to say no because I'm I'm doing what helps them because they fit into that expertise that I have. Um, um, and I think, and I'm sure Anna, this is something that you'll build on more. Actually, let's start being really proud of where we do sit and, and what our value is. And that we don't have to be any more than what we are to achieve that. What you're saying there, Becky, is really powerful, really resonates with me. The value of our interventions and of our approaches and the for using the words you, you use to feel proud of what we do. But may I add that we must also feel comfortable and know what we cannot do and what we shouldn't do. I see soft tissue therapy as really well placed to fulfill a person-centered care because of uh, the way our encounters are, because we have time to give to our clients, to listen to their lived experience of pain, because we are able to use touch to enhance therapeutic alliance, because we can and have the skills to provide uh, active advice, provide movement advice, and all within a framework of a scope of practice which allows us to work with people with minor and chronic musculoskeletal injuries and pain. And I think our vocational training reflects, I mean, some of it more than others, obviously, there is great variations in this country, but our vocational training reflects, in my opinion, our scope of practice and provides us with the necessary skills to be safe and effective. And also, and this is what excites me about this country and the training in this country, allows some people to be able to enter into a professional care, which our profession is, to be able to enter into it from another career. So as a mature student, without having to sacrifice full-time work, therefore for some people not being able to work where they study is, is not possible for most people indeed, and without having to sacrifice family, and also without the need of having a, an academic background. So there is plenty of positives about our qualifications, our diploma training, but it's different from a three years training, from a three, four or five years full-time training that our colleagues in osteopathy, chiropractic and physiotherapy, they go through. You know, our training is in this country, you, you have a variation from online to three months, six months or 12 months. And even then it's not full time so you know that is different from a, a degree course where you have thousands and thousands of words of essays to deliver at a very specific time so there is no flexibility that you have to be uh, extremely rigorous in uh, the academic writing you they have to be flawlessly uh, referenced the, the, the content needs to be sharp. And also, you have to be 
able to critically evaluate the, the topic, the content, the subject after having read and reviewed literature that support and refutes the, the argument. So that is, that is, is quite, is quite a, a lot of work. And all of that, all the academic work is also runs parallel to as much work in clinical practice. So physios, carios and osteos don't only do academic practice, they have to do clinical practice hours, clinical hours and also placement. So, you know, it, it, it's quite a, a big undertaking, but it's not for, for everyone. This pathway is not for everyone. University degrees are not suitable to everybody because of the financial commitment, time commitment, uh, and also because some people just do not like academic work. They find they're really, really dry. And, and that's okay. That's absolutely okay. And that's why vocational qualification have a great place to fill in this in this industry. So if someone someone chooses to that a three or five years full-time course to become a a, a LIDAL professional is not suitable for them, you still have the opportunity to enter, as I call it before, a caring profession through a different path learning educational pathway, which is more suitable to the person's needs and circumstances, but that comes at a, a compromise of less responsibility. And you know what? That's okay. And we should be okay with that. Just picking up quickly on your point around critical thinking, because that is obviously a huge component of evidence-based practice, and the two together are quite a hot topic at the moment. Um, I'm going to paraphrase Ben Cormack. Well, I don't know if it was Ben Cormack's quote, but I'm going to paraphrase Ben Cormack because it was definitely on one of his social media posts, and I can't remember if he uh, attributed it to someone else. But but fundamentally, because... Uh, evidence-based practice, if you will, uh, is precisely that. It is rather than seeking the evidence that supports your assumptions, it's compare the available evidence and use that to arrive at a decision. Ben Cormack's uh, quote uh, is along the lines of, so if your practitioner does is, is not uh, sort of evolving their practice on a reasonably regular basis, they're probably not evidence-based. If they're still using the same uh, techniques with the same narrative for the same uh, perceived problems 20 years down the line, they're not, uh, then, then they're lacking the, the ability to, to, to think critically. And I think coming back to your point earlier, Matt, that we're not saying that soft tissue therapists or massage therapists are not capable of this. It's just that in this particular situation, their qualification, if you like, doesn't evidence their ability to do that. Um, and, and that for me, because I know listening to you two now, and I won't get I won't get my hackles up because I know you and love you both very much. But it, it would is something a couple of years ago that would have put my hackles up because I didn't go to university. And I'll turn around and go, well, so you think I'm not capable of this? I'll show you that I'm capable of critical thinking. But what I can appreciate now is that what you're saying is that I may well be capable of it. I'm sure there's lots of therapists out there that are. But in this situation where a, a, a distinction had to be drawn, um, it's not evidenced anywhere that we, you know, my qualification doesn't sign me off, if you like, with, with that as a capability. Exactly. That, that's the difference. And probably I didn't make it. When you are a healthcare professional or a registered professional, you all go through the the, the, the the training, the basic training is the same. It's a degree-based training uh, with a very specific curriculum syllabus. For us, vocational qualifications, especially in our industry, some qualifications are great, some might be a little bit more du dubious, but 
you do not have that standard of assessment that then can make, in this case, the government, uh, assure the government that you all achieve those standards. Sorry, Becky, I'm going to jump in on this one. Uh, Because that Anna's touched on there in terms of the variability in qualification, uh, the variability in even examination of your skill sets uh, in a vocational qualification. You know, the, the reason most of us have studied vocational is because it suits the flexibility of vocational training suits us for whatever reason. That might be lifestyle, it might be cost, it might be whatever. Um, but I think it's also really important to consider that there is a trade-off for that flexibility. There is a trade-off for that. And, you know, one of the 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 complaints, I suppose, that that certainly came out when some of the guidance, I think back it was November lockdown, when in certain situations it was advised that perhaps level four and five therapists could work, but but no one sort of level three. And there were some uh, sort of people asking questions, well, go, hang on, I've been a level three therapist now for 20 years. I've done a million CPD in all of this stuff. What what makes a level four or level five therapist more qualified than I am? And I, th- I think the important point to that is there is no CPD that exists in the UK for our profession that is examined at the end of the course. You get your certificate for turning up. If you slept on the desk at the back of the room for the weekend, you still get your certificate. And unfortunately, your insurers will still insure you if it is a a new technique. So, you know, there (laughs) there is value, as there absolutely should be, in the base level qualification of the practitioner, the qualification to which we, as- we we assign a level. And that's essentially what we're saying here is that the degree based qualification is just more appropriate <laughs> in a medical circumstances, um, in, in this circumstances, than, than, uh, our, than, than a vocational qualification. I can, I can see that this could sound like we're almost being a little bit negative about um, the qualifications, the setup, who we are even. And and I don't think any of us mean that. I think um, what what we're trying to say here is that, yes, there's a difference. There's a professional difference. We're not assigning a value to you because of this. And I think that the point that I was trying to make at the beginning of that blog, the really unfortunate thing that for me that's happened in COVID is that because some of us have been told to close and some of us have been told to stay open, that certainly for me, the 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 chimp side of my brain for any Steve Peters fans is has gone, oh, so you're telling me I'm less important. And and I think that is the the knee-jerk reaction. And then there is this whole argument of we're not valued, we're not recognized we need our professional organizations to campaign for allied healthcare status, things like that, because, because that knee jerk reaction to that was, so you're saying that what I do is not important. And, and none of us are saying that we, what we're trying to say is that within this wider MSK care framework, we have a value, but we need to be very, very comfortable of where we sit and what our value is. And it remind I'm gonna really badly quote a, a an anecdote here, but there was I remember hearing once about um the president of America visited NASA and he was speaking to this chap and he was refilling the vending machine, I think, or he was a cleaner, something like that. And and the president said to him, and, and what do you do here? And he said, I put men on the moon. And that to me, like that's always spoken volumes to me in whatever job I do. There's all these different people involved at every level, have very different skill sets, perform very different roles. But at the end of the day, we're all essential to getting the man on the moon because if the vending machine wasn't full, you know, no one gets their their, their food. And, you know, so we it it. We're not saying you're less important or you don't have a place in this framework. You absolutely do. And 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 you know, with Becky, you're on fire this evening. With um or this evening. 
that that might give away when we're recording this guy. <laughs> Um, but uh, you're you're on fire in the sense that you know to take that analogy of the of the vending machine uh, refiller who puts men on the moon. Um, we're soft tissue therapists who are saving lives. Yeah, hundred you know? percent. And and so we are so are you know um, personal trainers out there and gym instructors and you know Ever. all these. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, there's so many people that. And not working that gives such value to people's lives and and can't work at the moment you know and it's I, I think that's that's worth remembering as well is that th this isn't just happening to us um it, it's, it's happening across the board so just I'm conscious of uh, we've been babbling on for ages already so just bringing this on to the last point that I sort of thought I'd discuss with you two tonight is the whole um and without going too deeply into this the whole um worms opening here yeah <laughs> the whole should we be regulated argument and the point that's really important to me um and it, it it's been made by several people during this whole thing it's actually do we need to be regulated to be recognized and uh, my opinion is no. Mm. Um, now, full disclosure um, for uh, Becky um, and myself are sort of fringe associated with uh, one of the professional associations and Anna actually works much more closely within the professional organization, professional association. Um, but we are, for this part of the chat, we're, we're going to park those hats. Uh, we're going to um, speak as independently as we possibly can with more of a view on the future you know let's let's talk ideals as opposed to right now because we don't we don't want to sort of get caught up in any of that so um it's probably worth just mentioning that but i think in future roles no as uh, future roles in, in 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 the future of soft tissue therapy no i don't believe we need to be regulated i think we need to reflect on the past and on the fact that actually as a profession and as individual professionals, we have really benefited from the lack of regulation because we've been able to largely choose whatever courses we've wanted to do and therefore whatever modalities we've wanted to apply in clinic with no one looking over our shoulders in a, uh, in a regulatory body kind of way to check that we're, we're we're doing things that fall in line with the you know the commandments of the regulator if you will um you know the laws of the regulator equally whilst there is a requirement to perform cpd um the the mechanisms in place to check on that CPD and to and to evaluate that CPD are perhaps not as robust as they would be within a regulator. Again, you know, just touching on my wife being a physio, uh, a couple of years ago, she was drawn out of the lottery that the CSP runs every year, uh, where you have to send in your complete uh, CPD. Yeah, yep. so she was audited for her CPD, so she had to make sure it was all properly written up. She had to essentially justify every piece of work that she'd done as to why it contributed to uh, the work that she's, she was doing and, and where it went. You know, th this is more than turning up for a weekend and coming home and sticking a certificate in a folder somewhere. Um, and yet, that is that is what we've been able to do. So that's that's the past. Um, I think we need to recognise the flexibility that not being regulated provides us. Moving forward, do we need to be regulated? No, I think regulation is is the knee jerk reaction because of the way that it has been translated to us that that is the reason that allied healthcare professionals have been allowed to op stay open in. Um, uh, in private practice during the pandemic because they're regulated. I, I think that's a, a very narrow view. Um, it makes it easier because they are regulated. There is a single regulator for each of those practice, uh, each of those uh, professions, and therefore there is only one point of contact for the government. You know, not brushing over that at all. There but, are other ways in which it can be done, 
without that uh, statutory, yeah. without that register and regulation. Um, there are so many other options. Uh, and, and also it's for people to um, maybe, maybe people should look a little bit more. Those, 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 sorry, those therapies are really keen on regulation. There should be understanding a little bit more about what regulation means, but also that it does not equate to quality and value. So that's not how you uh, achieve quality and value for for your profession. So, but there are there are there are certainly other ways, and I think we we were thinking about doing a podcast on it today. We guys to have a yes, yeah, we'll yeah. dive in a little bit and and explore what what it what the framework is within our our industry, within our field, within our profession for professional associations, regulation, what the voluntary registers mean. Uh, I, th- I think, I think, and th- again, totally personal perspective, but I think the most powerful thing that we as therapists can do in this time when we are uh, not in clinic is educate ourselves. The more we understand the way the industry works, the better informed decisions we as an industry can make about can the way we want to move forward. Been part, as you mentioned, it's been part of an, an association. One of the things which was so positive, so positive, that when the statement came out on saying we advise not to, not to work for those reasons, the overwhelming, nothing less than overwhelming support on our inbox i could not stop the emails kept coming through and they all kept saying they were all so positive and so support they all shared their ideas they all share their their views and even previously when there were views and ideas they didn't agree they shared and for a professional association to hear those unsolicited uh, messages both positive and some of them challenging don't, don't just go and complain just be constructive it's, it brings fire to the professional association and move, make sure they move forward remember the professional association they are nothing without the membership they're just representing you so make sure that you are heard so contact them and i think uh, we we need to start taking responsibilities as, as therapists uh, to do so i think what i'm really conscious of is that like like you both made the point the the knee jerk reaction right now is to say that we need um regulation because we've got this sense of we haven't been recognized, which I completely understand that emotion during this. And and like you say, Matt, the, the easiest way we see to get that is, is to become regulated because it would appear that those regulated professions have been recognized. I don't necessarily think that is the case. However, I completely understand how that's the perception. What I think right now that we can do that's probably far more important than than chasing regulation is actually look at ourselves professionally as both individuals and as part of the organizations and the associations that we're a part of. So what demonstrates right now our professionalism is putting wider public health before or at, at the center of what we do, if you like. Um, and yes, that makes means making some very difficult decisions, both for us personally, and I completely under, understand that from a financial point of view, things are dire. Um, but also from a individual basis with our clients, it is really difficult when you get a phone call from a client who who feels they need to come and see you or feels that you could give them real benefit and you can't do that for them right now. Of course, that that you know really speaks to our heart because we want to help those people. But putting that wider public health in the core of everything we do is really important. So that demonstrates our professionalism. But also let's demand more of our professional associations. What are they doing not to get us regulation, but to get us recognition? What are they doing to drive standards within the within our professions? What are they doing to help us 
evolve as therapists to to fulfill our scope of practice as best we can so let's not just my opinion personally is that you know chasing regulation is not the the pot of gold we think it might be but let's let's drive for that recognition i think so i was just thinking um obviously we would normally do some sort of theory to practice and it does seem uh, a little bit um cheeky to be doing a a theory to practice when no one is in practice so i've come up with this one as instead and uh and because we're just chatting away um see what you feel uh, about it and, and feel free to, to comment on it. But I think theory to practice this week probably ought to be join a professional association that meets your needs and describes how you feel about the industry. And more importantly, perhaps engage with that professional association. Bear in mind that most professional associations are run at least in part voluntarily. Um, and they can only do the work that they do if they've got support. And if you're wanting to see change, whatever that change may be, whether you disagree with this, uh, in, entire, um, podcast and, and, and you want to take the opposite view, that is fine engage with the PAs, put your point across and, and, and help make that change. And I think that's something that, that actually we can all do in a really positive way during this third period of lockdown. Now that we've really got the hang of this thing. I think that's perfect, Matt. I think, you know, so even if you are a member of a PA now, are they the right one for you? Have they served you well during this? Um, if they haven't, you know, it, are they aligned with how you are as a practitioner? But also, have you voiced that and have you challenged them? And, you, you know, like you say, Matt, they are there to serve and you all, at the end of the day. Uh, yes, so and they all need get involved. So volunteer for your PA, yeah. mm. which it could be for – yeah, sorry. There's a reason that- there's a reason there are so many PAs, and 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 that's because because it speaks back to and, the and this, breadth and of disagree. our industry. Maybe because I'm European, yeah. no, no, I, I, I I quite like those different individualities, but then all under one. Just because we Brexited <laughs> doesn't mean we're not European. Um, I can't believe Anna's not on the boat yet. <laughs> yeah, you wrote to the Home Office a few weeks ago. I did, I did. Yeah, still here. Um, no, the the point being that um, we we have an enormous breadth in our industry. It is one of the huge advantages of having vocational qualifications that are um, essentially designed by the practitioners who then teach them. Um, but one one PA cannot possibly represent the, the best interests of all of them. It simply can't. So we need multiple PAs, but those PAs absolutely need help to be the best versions of themselves. That sounds really cliche, but... It, That's very, very <laughs> hashtag living your best life, Matt. It is, yeah. <laughs> YOLO! But I think, and, when, and, when, and when you were talking, Matt, about... Um, it can easily sound like a negative, can't it, that that there's all these different vocational training qualifications and there's all these different CPDs and you can go in all these different directions. And and that's part of the reason we're not regulated or it would be really difficult to regulate us. Actually, I believe that's what gives us our richness and that's what gives us, you know, that really good place in MSK care because clients have that breadth to choose from. I personally enjoyed this episode very much. Take on message for me. Positively challenge yourself as a therapist and your role so that we can all grow together as a profession. Thank you for listening. And as always, we like to encourage and stimulate discussion. So if you have something to say about what we chatted today, go to the Massage Collective Facebook page and leave us a comment. To keep in the loop with our episodes, remember to subscribe to Massage Matters wherever you enjoy listening to your podcasts. Oh, before I forget, Therapy Live series of conferences 
will kick off on the 6th of March with the particular focus for this one on pelvic health. We will be there, so grab a ticket and we'll see you there. Bye now.